Welcome to the second episode of A Decade of Private Debt. As PEI Group's magazine Private Debt Investor celebrates its 10-year anniversary, we're looking back at the insights, stories, and pivotal moments that have shaped the private debt landscape over the past decade. In this six-part mini-series, we're bringing you an exclusive dive into the minds of industry leaders and key players, exploring the challenges, triumphs, and the evolving dynamics that have defined the world of private debt. If you want to hear the entire mini-series right now, you can go subscribe to PEI Group's newest audio offering, the Private Debt Investor Podcast, by searching wherever you like to listen or by clicking the link below in the description. Then after the mini-series, you'll continue to get industry-leading insights into the world of private debt from PDI's team of reporters and analysts and from some of the asset class's leading figures. Don't forget to also download Private Debt Investor's Decade Issue for more insight on how the industry has evolved over the last 10 years, which you can also find at privatedebtinvestor.com or at the link in the description. In this episode, PDI's senior editor Andy Thompson sits down with Paul Burdell, the CEO of LCM Partners. Burdell discusses the evolution of private debt and banking oversight over the past decade, the impact of regulations, as well as LCM's unique position in the industry. So, delighted to be joined this morning by Paul Bedell, Chief Executive Officer of LCM Partners, one of Europe's leading fund managers in the, the private debt space. Paul, I mean, we've spoken a lot over the years, but there's probably a few gaps in my knowledge if we go back far enough. Perhaps you could venture back to the earliest days, I guess, maybe even graduate years, where um, you were thinking about what sort of career might lie ahead, because I'm interested to know how you ended up in private debt. I know there were a number of different steps along the way, but was there any sort of common thread in your early career that joined things together? Or as it is with some people, did some things almost happen by accident? And where initially were you setting out to go? We know where you ended up, but what were the initial plans? Well, thanks for having me, Andy. It's, It's a pleasure. As I mentioned earlier, this is my first podcast. Probably my last one, given. But kidding aside. Um, Private credit, private debt, um, words. Um, in other words, it's just it's just a, just a description. I think that how I got into this space wasn't by accident because when I last worked for a, uh, had a proper job with a proper company called DLJ, I left them and they weren't called hedge funds. They were just hedge positions. So we basically hedged our positions in converts. But we were doing credit when not as a loan or as a vulture fund, but, but basically fallen angels. And CDSs didn't exist. So what we did was is we they did a huge amount of credit work on the underlying corporate credit. And at the time, current yields were like 30% unleveraged. It was huge. And because there was so much risk attached to junk bonds, as, you know, get that word junk, mm-hmm. we thought, hang on a second, we can probably use some of that 30% of power that we could use to actually hedge our position. So what we did is we used the equity market. We bought puts and we took that against our investment and it was pretty successful. And so we did that and did credit. Uh, we did it successfully. We, we managed money for two of the world's billionaires that were living in Monaco before they were called unicorns. <laughs> <laughs> this is back in the, in the late 80s, or mid to late 80s. And we built it from there. And things went on. There were kind of different permutations or differences on how markets change. And we did that until about 1998. And my wife and I, Selena, we basically built this business from scratch. And so we understood how everything was built. So we, we weren't, we were front office people. And so when we saw this market in distressed consumer debt, we thought, well, there could be something here, distressed corporate, distressed consumer. You know, what's the difference? Well, little did we know how much effort it would take. 
And so we saw this business. And, and so what we did was is we went to American Express, Barclay Card, and it was called Lombards, which is part of a NatWest subsidiary, uh, which did consumer finance and asset finance. And much to our surprise, they never sold the debt before. So that was kind of the germ of an idea. Light went on. There could be something here because we'd found quite a few things. Because going back to when I first left the bank, is that different areas of the bank didn't speak to each other, whether they were territorial or proprietary or whatever, but they wouldn't, the convert people wouldn't speak to the warrant people, wouldn't speak to the option people, wouldn't speak to the bond people. And therefore, that's when the original arbitrage business was founded. And I think that's what we were able to do is actually gain some experience, but also be able to look beyond your borders of your skill. Mm-hmm. to learn new stuff or, you know, be inquisitive. And I think that's kind of how we started. And the banks, these three banks said, you know, we've never sold a debt before. It felt at times like pushing water uphill. But we were front office people and we were going into the back office, which made it slightly easier in terms of being able to explain to a CFO or a COO that actually if we can make your non-performing loans more efficient, you can actually reinvest that money at a higher rate rather than just being a cost center. You can actually become a profit center. And that's kind of how we started it. But it was a mostly education. And also, I think that at the, the time, people were treated pretty badly in, in non-performing consumer debt. In fact, they were treated horribly. Because what would happen is, is a bank would try to collect it, give it to a debt collector, come back two or three times from a debt collector, then they would give it to a lawyer, and a lawyer would go out and bankrupt people. Every step along the way, those external parties were making a fee from the bank. They didn't really care about the underlying person. So when we said to the bank, we're going to call your debtors customers, they kind of blanched a little bit. They go, what's what's happening? <laughs> what's it? You know, no, 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 they're debtors. No, they're they're customers. They're people. And and we also said we're going to treat them with dignity and respect. Ah, oh, shock horror. Yes. Well, that serious. It was. I mean, it, you know, we were speaking to some very hardcore debt collection people, and they just thought we were mad. They, actually, worse than mad. I'm not going to repeat that. <laughs> but they, they they thought we were mad anyway. So and then we also said we're not going to charge fees or commissions. And, you know, today it's called ESG, but 25 years ago, it was called Madness. Now, we made like 5X, so <laughs> it couldn't have been too bad. Not, not, not a bad return from Madness. No, <laughs> no but, the, but I think the thing is, is that what we do in private credit is not a trade. It's making and helping and assisting banks and finance companies and financial institutions become more efficient mm-hmm. in one form or another. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I just cut in there, Paul, because, you know, you were saying about pushing water uphill mm. and having the germ of an idea. Um, it seems to me that that's almost the thing that links what you've done during your career. You've kind of you've spotted opportunities, but they're not necessarily straightforward opportunities to execute because mm. people are not used to looking at things that way. You sort of have found ways of encouraging people to look at things in a new way. And that's where the business idea has sort of come from? Yeah, I think, well, it's it's common sense. I think there's always been a kind of a byproduct of being a large organization where if you're a senior sitting atop this 100,000-person organization, you're going to defer to your people in those particular departments because you think and they're meant to be experts. And those particular experts don't want to give up, and they're not encouraged to make the bank more efficient. They're encouraged to do a good job, of course. But if they start selling some of their assets at, at too cheap, not too cheap a price, but at a price, they're going to reduce their influence within the bank. So therefore, there's some personalities. So pushing water uphill, we were simplifying it. And I think sometimes, you know, I'm a firm believer in the KISS principle, which is keep it simple, stupid. Mm-hmm. And, and, and if you can actually simplify something, it's, you know, within two or three paragraphs, which I, obviously I digress often, but, <laughs> <laughs> it, but if you can actually explain what you do in two or three paragraphs to someone who 
you know, thinks that they might understand something, but say, actually, this is an easier way to do it. It's a more efficient way to do it. And also a little bit of persistence. So don't give up. If it's a true idea and it's a mutual benefit and it's a true idea, then you should never give up with that person because basically they'll eventually get it. But at first, they're going to defer to their expert, their internal expert. But if you can actually say, this will make your bank or financial institution more efficient, this will be able to allow you. Because one of the things we did was, is that the back office is always the last one to get a budget. They're the yeah. least important person within a financial mm -hmm. institution. And to be fair, they're doing the hardest work. It's like a garbage man. Garbage men should be paid the highest salary of anybody because they're doing the yeah. worst, the most horrible job no one ever wants mm -hmm. to do. But they should be. And the reason I say that, I was stopped in front of one, and I this on, on the way here, and and I thought, God, what that they're doing an amazing job for us, mm -hmm. you know. Anyway, the point is, the argument that we made to the banks is, if you had a thousand people managing your your non-performing loans today, and let's say that was spread across twelve months, sell it to us at the end of month six, and you'll have five hundred people there who basically you can take half of those people and bring them into your earlier stage of asset account management, so you've increased your headcount by fifty percent. Take the other 250 and actually distribute them in other parts of the bank, and you reduce your costs by 25%. Mm -hmm. yep. And then you can take the capital that we've provided you with and reinvest it at a higher rate than what we're discounting today. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so that was a simple argument. It took a little while, but I'm not going to suggest that organizations are like sheep, but somebody has to be able to make that first leap of faith. Uh, and we were very fortunate the three banks that I mentioned a minute ago uh, were the first ones that, that we did business with. And, and in fact, once we actually had done that, then everybody else said, oh, well, they're, you know, they're a large organization. They're smart. Uh, and so if they took the plunge, and let's, let's try it. Yeah. Yep. And so it was, became a snowball effect. And then what happened is those same banks that took us, for example, in the UK, took us into Spain in 04. Mm -hmm. Then they took us into Italy. You know, they, so they took us around because we became, we made them more efficient. Mm -hmm. We were considered best practice. Yep. And that's how we started in private credit, which was, you know, the, it, was, it was tough, but it was, you know, anyway. Yeah. And so that's, the, you, you've described there very eloquently kind of the roots of the business. And that's how it started with your expertise in credit, your identification of that space in consumer loans, non-performing consumer loans, and then building up these relationships with the banks, which has been kind of the, almost the bulwark of your mm -hmm. business right at the heart of it. I mean, this, this series is looking at a decade of private debt. Sure. And obviously, you know, your history as an organization goes back beyond that. But perhaps we could take the opportunity now just to explore a little bit how the business has evolved. Obviously, it's become very large for one thing. It's a prominent pan-European player, huge resources, huge infrastructure and number of people. And also, you know, great success in sort of, you know, reaching out to the investor community and getting some of the world's largest investors to support you. And also the business has moved into, you know, an, a number of different areas, you know, including, I mean, you referred to ESG earlier and that's an area that's important to the business now. So perhaps you could just give us a bit of a summary of that evolution. I think that what has changed over the last 10 years is, is oversight. It's also oversight with the political element. But I think the first oversight came in post-GFC with Basel III and IFRS 9. And I think that was forcing banks to actually address their non-performing loans. And also how they manage loans in general. That's been kind of the driver. But it's also kind of different. I was having a chat with somebody yesterday. If you think of where whether it was TARP or whether it was NAMA or any of the other government 
support infrastructures that they created. There's also a question of are banks allowed to go bust or are organizations allowed to go bust? Because if you look at what happened in COVID, and it's what I call the F word, and it's not the word you're thinking, it's called forbearance. <laughs> Thank you <laughs> <It's>, for that. <laughs> it's called for, for forbearance. Thank you, Editor. Uh, and, and I think that's also driving the market today. It's, it's almost circuitous in, in terms of, or circular in terms of with social media. So people are driven by social media. Politicians are driven by social media. Politicians drive regulators. Regulators drive banks. And then it starts all over again. What does that mean? So I think first is that regulators have addressed non-performing loans, and they've addressed it in, in how banks set the reserves against it, how they report against it. And obviously, some countries were more adept at this than others. Some didn't actually want to address the situation. They kind of ignored it. But they're all kind of all singing from the same hymn sheet today. And obviously, Basel IV, because they make it even more difficult, but that's something we can talk about it in a minute, and that's the future. But I think that what has happened today in terms of, because our, our business isn't NPLs anymore. It's much more than that, because the banks that had a good experience with us at, at the outset, and in fact, it was during the GFC, was, there were lots of idiots running around with checkbooks overpaying for stuff, and we mm -hmm. didn't buy, for example, in Spain for almost two years. So we started buying performing loans. And like all these things, if you do a good thing with a counterparty, the partner's a wrong word, as a principal, and you make them more efficient. It then led from non-performing loans to rescheduled loans to performing loans. And then you actually would they'd start going through all the other books that they had. So it's SMEs. And so uh, asset finance, residential mortgages, all the different elements, which is real estate. So, so we do about 15 different products today, both from, from non-performing through to fully performing. In terms of the, the, the market today from where it was 10 years ago, um, I would say several things have changed or several things have evolved. First was private equity. Private equity came into this market and basically put you know, bought quite a few businesses. Um, they also put in a lot of leverage. We have no leverage in our balance sheet. We also have no leverage in our portfolios. And I think that's also set us apart from others. Our raison d'etre, our USP, is efficiency. Because we, we have 65 developers in Wales. That's onshore. And I think the point is, is, is that we basically run our own application. So that, it's that efficiency that allows us to compete against leveraged buyers. So I think that's one of the things that, that we had to contend with, which were leveraged buyers. However, going back to the point I made earlier about social media and forbearance, that forbearance came down, uh, had a direct effect on the banks. And I th it actually goes back to the GFC when I think that when J.P. Morgan bought Bear Stearns and they got the robo-signings on mortgages. Yeah. And, and so I, I can't remember the exact number, but it was many millions of dollars that they got fined. And that had a wave effect on banks globally and regulators' enthusiasm in order to force banks to, to basically treat customers better. So what that meant was, and this is across performing and non-performing, banks are hyper, hypersensitive on who they do business with. So 10, 12, 15 years ago, they'd sell to anybody with a check. Mm -hmm. But then what happens, the regulators said, no, that can't happen anymore. You actually have to, you have a responsibility, Mr. Bank, to your customer, not debtor, customer. And therefore, because surprise, surprise, now they have Mr. Google, they can say, what happens if somebody's trying to treat me badly by my bank? Go to your politician, mm -hmm. <laughs> go to your local, <laughs> you know, and if you kind of just think holistically. So the point is, is how customers are treated. But that, so that's also reduced the amount of players. So you just can't walk in and say, hey, I've got a check and I want to start buying stuff today. Because the bank's going to say, thank you very much. But no, I have this panel of people, which I, I regularly audit. Mm -hmm. in terms of operationally audit and yeah. see. So the market has changed in terms of how banks and finance companies are being treated or treat people who do business with them because their regulator is saying, you have a responsibility to that customer, mm -hmm. actually and ultimately. Mm -hmm. You know, they used to say things roll downhill. Yeah. 
This is how it rolls uphill. Yeah. <laughs> That's very good. That was like, censored, by the way. Like yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm picking up on these little censorships. Very good. I like the way you're doing it, Paul. Um, but yeah, it's interesting that you were talking about, because we were talking about regulation earlier. And obviously, this was very specific regulation designed to protect the customer in these specific situations. But obviously, there's been a lot of talk around regulation generally with private debt or, or within the private markets context, at least. And, you know, you were saying earlier how regulation can be a good thing. And I think that, you know, there's always this sense that regulation is necessarily bad. You know, it's, it's the bogeyman who's going to come down and, you know, start restricting our activities and clamping down on what we do and, and, and things like that. But, you know, from, from your perspective, there's a positive role for the regulators. How, how do you see things panning out for the asset class in relation to regulation? Well, as you know, and PDI has expertly reported on it recently, and it's also some of the other news services or financial news services, is regulators are playing catch-up on private credit because what they've seen is actually there, there's been a decrease in the banks and finance companies or, or you know, financial institutions providing financing to private equity. Uh, and then there's been this kind of wave of funds that have been raised to basically try to m- make up for that shortfall. And I, and I think what's happening is, is that several regulators kind of woke up and went, oh, what's happening? And they're trying to play catch-up. Now, that, I think knee-jerks are always a mistake, and knee-jerks always come back and bite people in the backside. And that's when industry and lobbyists you know, start saying, no, no, you can't do this, you can't do that. So I would say two things. First is I think that what we as an industry have to do is actually educate regulators. I'm not suggesting they're stupid because they've got a hell of a lot on their plates. But what I am saying is this is an asset class that they really haven't had to focus on. Why? Principally because it's professional investors. It's not widows and orphans that, that, you know, for other words, via the banks. So people who've got no experience, private credit experts, GPs, fund managers, predominantly and mostly are managing professional investors' money who actually know the pitfalls, know the weaknesses, know its strengths. So therefore, that's less of an issue. What's more of an issue, if I was a regulator, is that I would be concerned about the operating system. In other words, the finance industry. And making sure that, because obviously what's happened is that transactions are happening because private credit's financing. I mean, that's a good thing. But if private credit then falls into a, if people start making rash and stupid investments and LPs start getting nervous and they start withdrawing money if, if they're able to, then, then that, that could cause some upset within the financial system. And that is a regulation and that would, that would concern the regulator. So what I would suggest, and I'm not talking about leading this because I'm too busy, but I would say that, that we as an industry, and be, be pleased to be a part of it, is we need to educate because central bankers and regulators were not designed to do private credit. They have not been educated or, or taught what's actually going on at the coal face. Yep. And I think once we educate them, then, then they'll be more happy because it's all about this transparency. I'm a firm believer in transparency. And in fact, in private credit, it's very easy to, to be transparent. It's not like I said earlier, like a hedge fund with a, uh, you know, like if you're a, you know, an amazing shop like Renaissance, you know, who've got these algorithms. It's not a black box. It's a loan. That's it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But there happens to be a few things happening today, whether it's NAV financings and things like that. You know, people have to be prudent. I think that's the most important thing. So I would say if I was a regulator, no, if I was which I am, an active participant in the private credit, private debt market in North America and in Europe, we have a responsibility to educate the regulators mm-hmm. on where the risks are, yeah. where the positives are. Because there are many, many, po- there are far more positives than there are risks. Because as I said earlier, regulators' job principally and mostly as a central bank, but also as a regulator, is to ensure that deposits, which they're insuring in most cases, uh, are not at risk. People's money and, and hard-earned money is not put at risk. Yeah. Does that make sense? 
Absolutely makes sense, yeah. Maybe regulation feeds into this a little bit as well, looking forward maybe to the coming years. Um, I won't say next 10 years because that's a really hard thing to predict, but I think the market is in a really interesting place at the moment. Obviously, I'm conscious of the fact that what LCM does is not necessarily the same as the, the private debt universe as a whole, which obviously takes in such a wide range of different activities. But how do you see things looking forward, perhaps maybe from an LCM perspective and also from an overall market perspective in this period where uh, I think people are seeing some very interesting opportunities for for new investments. Mm -hmm. Also, people, partly because of that leverage point that you made earlier, people are conscious of some of the pressures on borrowers and on their existing positions within portfolios. So there's almost a bit of a dual track at the moment. Look forward, look back. There's a bit of opportunity. There's a bit of pressure. How do you see things? It's funny you say that, Andy, because I was just thinking, I mean, I think there's several things. And and, and this is kind of thinking laterally. And I hadn't really thought about it until just now. And I promise you, I, this is, a, this is a, a unique thought. Maybe I should think about it before I say it. <laughs> <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> I could actually see an example where depositors at a bank don't put their money on deposit, but actually put it into credit via fund. And I would say that's wholesale versus retail. Retail is basically you're, you're getting your 2 or 3% when base rates are 5%. And if you put it into a private credit fund, it's yielding 5 or 6 or 7%. Because in, in the main, what's happening is the bank's actually lending that money to the same person. They're just taking the spread. Mm-hmm. So if we as an industry are able to kind of join forces with the bank, we can actually make them more efficient so they can actually participate within this. Because I think the key thing is not, but banks are not adversaries, they're partners. So I think that's the first thing. We as an industry should do that. Rather than compete, we should complement. And I think that's a C word. <laughs> and I think that that's my thought just now in terms of where it could go holistically. Because there, there's been kind of a push in you know, high net worth and ultra high net worth going into private credit. There's kind of a big push at the moment. I also think that there's so many different angles to private credit. There, there really isn't a one-stop answer because... Each of them have got a different role to play. It's like a bank. You, you almost have to look at private credit as a private bank mm-hmm. because private credit does so many different things, which you've highlighted. You know, you can say private equity, and private equity is quite easy. It's equity going to private business. But private debt stroke private credit has got two different things because you've got special sits, which is basically distressed or really distressed. And that's one thing. But that's kind of grouped under alts. But private credit's been pulled into that as well. Yeah. So it's got many different fathers, kids. You know, it's got lots of offshoots. The one thing that happened during the GFC is that if you were looking at it, ABS, and I don't know if you know, but there wasn't one deal that went down, went sour in ABS in Europe during the GFC. Wow. Yeah. Okay. It's interesting. No, but but what happened is, is that if you had a, a structure that was full, a private structure doesn't mm-hmm. matter. There was full of assets, asset-backed securities or asset-backed loans, which is what private credit is, asset-backed loans in most cases. Because that particular vehicle was traded in a public market and it was a high-quality asset, that asset would have been sold down because those were the few assets you could actually sell to actually gain liquidity. It had nothing to do with the underlying asset quality. Asset quality remained really good. It was high quality. But the public market sold it off because they needed liquidity in order to fund all their crap that they bought. So... Private credit basically means that the asset manager, the fund manager that actually owns those assets that were, that were created, either by an iBank or themselves, they actually don't have, they're, they're not going to have, the, it's not marked to market because nothing actually happened to the underlying assets. So you do market to market. You market to its cash flows. You market to whatever you want. So it's prudent. But private credit actually is superior to the public markets in asset-backed securities and, and private loans 
then the public markets, if you need liquidity. So if you were to compare, or how could there be a migration shift from investors from publicly quoted securities to private securities, if it's the same asset, one, you have transparency because you know what's happening, but two, you have a, a superior return. It's the same asset. Yeah. So that's where I could actually see... Mm. That's actually what we're seeing with our investors, I mean, because our investors are very sophisticated and they're very large. So they saw that years ago when they started investing with us, because we education is the wrong word because they were already smart. But the point is, is that we just demonstrated that if you have an asset, that if we go out and create a pool of mortgages, you can either buy it in ABS form, which is called retail, or you could buy it from us from wholesale. The returns are substantially larger. We're not talking 50 basis points. You're talking three, four, five big percentage points. Yeah working with us, and that's of a benefit to their pensioners, mm -hmm. yep. to their investors, mm -hmm. same assets. Yep. So what does that mean? So just think ahead. There could be a migration shift from the ABS market, which is trillions of dollars globally. That could actually go into private credit. And I haven't really thought about that, but that's really where it's moving to. And it's not just financing private equity deals. Yeah. And again, I suppose that ties back in with the point you were making about regulation. You have to work hand in hand with the regulators yes. on this as well. They have to understand what it is that's happening if this does take hold, this movement of capital. Oh, it is. But it is taking hold. But, it, but you know, how rapidly it does, I, I, I can't tell you. But, but yes, it's just education. Private credit is a good thing. If you actually look at the major pension plans in North America and in Europe today, the percentages that are going into alts, is rising daily. And basically, CIOs and people who sit on the, the, you know, the investment committees or the boards are actually increasing alts substantially daily. And I think that's a good thing. Yep. Okay. Well, thank you very much for that, Paul. I think that probably brings things to an end. But that's been a, an immensely enjoyable conversation from my side. We've learned about this business that started small and grew very big. You persevered and it paid off. <laughs> and, uh, and thank you for your insights into uh, the evolution of the market, what might lie ahead and where LCM fits into that. That again was LCM CEO Paul Bodell and PDI Senior Editor Andy Thompson. Make sure to hit the link in the description to check out PDI's Decade Issue at privatedebtinvestor.com for more insight on how the industry has evolved over the last 10 years. And if you want to listen to the rest of this mini-series right now and continue to get great insights on the private credit market afterwards, subscribe to the Private Debt Investor podcast wherever you like to listen or click the link in the description. And stay tuned for the third episode of the series, where Andy will sit down with Cartesia's head of France, Julien Ligon, to discuss his reflections on the past decade. This episode was produced by me, Mina Tumai, and edited by Eric Fish. Thanks for listening.